Hello and welcome to the Diction Police. I'm your host, Ellen Rissinger, an American vocal coach accompanist on the music staff of the Zemperoper in Dresden, Germany. Olivier Bétain is back to discuss Baroque French diction of the 17th century with a scene from Armide. This is the continuation of last week's episode on 16th century diction, and again we focus on the differences between modern French and this time the French of the 17th century. Olivier Bétain was born in Lausanne, Switzerland. He studied medicine but also singing and acting, and now specializes in historical pronunciation of lyric French through the Middle Ages and Baroque periods. Aside from his website Chantez-vous Francais, which I mentioned last week, he also has authored many scientific publications on this topic and regularly gives master classes and lectures throughout French-speaking Europe. Olivier and I talked a little bit about the difference between the Ronsard poem that we discussed last week and the text for today. It's older than the than the other. Oui, il y a un siècle plus, il y a un siècle de différence entre, yeah. euh, entre les deux textes. L'un est un texte lyrique, poétique, hein, mignon, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. et puis l'autre, enfin, euh, est un texte dramatique, c'est un opéra. Yeah. Exactly. Et donc, je me suis servi d'une prononciation proche de celle de Baïf, du poète Baïf pour la première, et puis proche d'un grammairien de la fin du XVIIe siècle pour la deuxième. Last week's text was about a century earlier than this one, and while the Mignon was a lyric text, that is to say a poem, this text, because it's recitative, is in a more colloquial spoken language. Because of that, for the Mignon, he followed the phonetics of Baif for the text in the last episode, but with this one, he's following the rules of the 17th century phoneticians. Remember that we have linguists all the way from the medieval times creating alphabets for the French, so as strange as it sounds, we can have a pretty clear idea of what it sounded like. In this episode, it'll be helpful to have a basic knowledge of modern French pronunciation, because we talk about some of the differences assuming that we all know all the rules already. If you need to review them, there are quite a few episodes on French diction already. You can access them on the blog page under the blue box category by clicking the French diction topic. I also have a few interviews on French diction coming up and a great French diction book by Jason Nadecki to discuss, so look for those to come soon. Again, I'll be posting a PDF of the text for this episode so that you can see the spellings that we're looking at, as well as links to Olivier's website, Chantez-vous Francais, at the blog at www.thedictionpolice.com. Don't forget the the. You can also follow the Diction Police on Facebook or on Twitter at Diction Police. Our text for today is a section of recitative from Armide, a French opera by the poet Philippe Quinault and composer Jean-Baptiste Lully, who was considered the founder of French opera. What I love most about that statement is that Lully himself came from Florence, Italy, he only moved to France when he was 14. Rather than following the Italian style of opera with separate recitatives and musical numbers, he combined the two. So for us that seems a little bit like endless recitatives. Quinault's <laughs> first play was performed when he was just 18, and he went on to write many stage plays until 1671, when he contributed to a libretto set by Lully. From that time on, he only wrote libretti for Lully's works. I did a little better with this part of the interview in translating, but I still found a few places that I needed to tweak my own French, so again I've edited a few translations. Enfin, 
il est en ma puissance, ce fatal ennemi, ce superbe vainqueur. Le charme du sommeil le livre à ma vengeance. Je vais percer son invincible cœur. Par lui, tous mes captifs sont sortis d'esclavage, qu'il éprouve toute ma rage. Quel trouble me saisit Qui me fait hésiter Qu'est-ce qu'en sa faveur la pitié me veut dire Frappons Ciel, qui peut m'arrêter Achevons Je frémis, vengeons-nous Je soupire. Est-ce ainsi que je dois me venger aujourd'hui Colère s'éteint quand j'approche de lui. Plus je le vois, plus ma fureur est vaine. Mon bras tremblant se refuse à ma haine. Ah, quelle cruauté de lui ravir le jour À ce jeune héros tout cède sur la terre qui croirait qu'il fût né seulement pour la guerre Il semble être fait pour l'amour. Ne puis-je me venger à moins qu'il ne périsse et ne suffit-il pas que l'amour le punisse puisqu'il n'a pu trouver mes yeux assez charmants qu'il m'aime au moins par mes enchantements que, s'il se peut, je le haïsse. Venez, secondez mes désirs, démons, transformez-vous en d'aimables zéphyrs. Je cède à ce vainqueur, la pitié me surmonte. Cachez ma faiblesse et ma honte dans les plus reculés déserts. Volez, conduisez-nous au bout de l'univers. That was Olivier Bettin reading a text from Armide. Actually, in the second line, we have uh, an exception in modern French, and it's still an exception back then, ennemi. Ennemi. So it's not enivre, it doesn't go to that anasal sound. Voilà. Alors là, en français moderne, c'est ennemi, ça c'est clair, il n'y a pas de nasalisation. Et à cette époque, euh, en France, au XVIIe siècle, c'est la même chose, la même chose qu'en français moderne. Au XVIe siècle, on aurait plutôt dit ennemi. Back in the 16th century, they would have said ennemi, but since the 17th century, this word no longer has the nasal at the beginning. It's just ennemi. It's a good word to memorize even for modern-day French because it pops up from time to time in areas like avant de quitter. Okay, now we get the word invincible. I'm not even going to try this with the, with the nasals. Eh oui. Alors, pour les grammairiens de la fin du 17e siècle, il y a cinq nasales en français. Ooh. Cinq voyelles nasales en français. So at this point, this point in time, there were five different nasals, nasal sounds. Voilà. Alors on a en, hein, A-N, yeah. on a on, O-N, right. on a un, U-N, un, mm -hmm. on a un, A-I-N ou I-N à la fin ou à l'intérieur du mot, yeah. simple. Yeah. et on a un qui est, un, qui est plus fermé au début du mot. Invincible. 
Oh my gosh. Okay, so we have the second one is the one we're used to, which is the open e nasal with the tilde. But the first one is actually a closed e voilà. sound, a closed e. Voilà. Oh my gosh. Invincible. C'est deux, deux voyelles nasales différentes. I didn't explain this very well because I understood it and just moved on, but I wanted to make it clear. Olivier showed us the five nasal sounds. The first ones we already know, which were the o nasal, o n, the a nasal, a n, the o e nasal, which is spelled with a u n, and the regular open e nasal, which can be spelled i n. But the fifth one, a closed e nasal, is used instead of the open e nasal at the beginnings of words, and again is spelled as i n. Since we have i n in the first and second syllables of this word, we get the closed e nasal followed by an open e nasal. Invincible. Yeah, but again, now we don't we don't get that sort of mm thing at the end. It's a pure sound. It's one sound, not two, right? Mm -hmm. Voilà. À cette époque, on a vraiment des voyelles nasales qui sont une seule voyelle euh, et plus de consonnes qui suit. C'est un seul son yeah. nasal. Parfois, les professeurs de chant demandent des prononciations un peu plus archaïques. Hein? On a des professeurs de chant qui disent quand la note est longue, si vous avez une longue note, si vous avez une vocalise, si vous avez un tri, prononcez comme autrefois, prononcez à l'ancienne. Yeah. Puis ça, ce, hein? yeah. on dirait puissance au premier vers, mais si vous chantez longtemps avec un tremblement, avec un tri, vous chantez puissance comme au siècle d'avant. Yeah, so he's saying that some teachers actually insist when you have a long sound or when you have a vocalise or something that you're doing in even in this this century, they want you to do it in sort of a more ancient style. So rather than saying puissance, they want to sing puissance with that extra sound. But in general, by this point in time, we did have just one vowel sound with nothing extra like we found in the century before this. Exactly. In, in the next line of it, we have captif, but we don't say the S again. This is again, seems like modern French, right? Mm -hmm. Alors, ah, captif son, voilà. Parce qu'on pourrait ne pas prononcer le F, hein, le F. On pourrait dire, par lui, tous mes captifs sont sortis d'esclavage. Ça serait possible. Et puis, autrement, on dit, par lui, tous mes captifs sont sortis d'esclavage. Mais le S final et le S initial se confondent. C'est une seule... Il y a un seul S. We have the choice here, actually, whether we want to say the letter F in captif or capti. But in any case, the S at the end of captif will actually end up being part of son, mm -hmm. as opposed to being its own, sound, its own sound. Mm -hmm. And again, we have, in he have here what we had in the other piece, which is the S at the end of sorti being looking like an F, and voilà. the, and the oui. S at the end looking like an S. Voilà. On, on voit que ça n'est pas tout à fait le même caractère, puisque la, la petite barre horizontale est seulement à gauche pour le S, elle traverse pour le F. He's saying that in this F-looking S, the crossbar is only on the left-hand side. It doesn't go completely through the way a crossbar of an F would. Voilà, ça se ressemble beaucoup, oui. Yeah. And d'esclavage, that's a case where we do actually say the S in the middle of a word. We don't always get to say those, huh? Voilà. Oui, parce <laughs> qu'on le, on le dit, dit aujourd'hui, 
et on le disait déjà au, au 16e siècle. C'est un mot euh, bizarre, hein? esclave, ça vient de, du mot euh, slave, hein? slavien. Donc on a commencé par dire slave, et puis comme c'était difficile de, de prononcer sl, on a ajouté un e devant, hein? on appelle ça un e prosthétique, mm-hmm. et donc on a esclave pour faciliter l'articulation. Yeah, so they actually added the E in front of the sclavage because they didn't want to start off with, with that skl. Uh, and actually, in that sense, they did what the Spanish people do. Estudio, esclavage. Exactement. Les, les Espagnols sont très forts pour ça. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, again, we get a lot of these words with the O-I. So, est-ce ainsi que je dois? Que je dois, exactement. So we have the exact same thing we had even 100 years before then. Voilà. À cette époque, on prononçait moins volontiers « ouais » pour les imparfaits, les, les terminaisons des imparfaits, comme « j'avouais hein, » ou, ou « qu'est-ce qu'on a qui, on a qui croirait à un endroit exactly. ?» euh, À la page 30, la troisième ligne. Hein, yeah. Et là, probablement qu'on disait déjà qu'il croirait, qu'il croirait et même parfois qu'il crée, qui créerait, hein, deux fois « est ». Oh, wow So there's, we have three choices with that, huh? Voilà. Ça, c'est, c'est des usages différents, hein? Suivant le... Suivant... Dans la conversation, hein? Dans un usage qui, qui n'est pas théâtral, on aurait dit qui créerait à l'époque. Okay. So, before I forget everything. Um, <laughs> so, we're saying um, in, in, in page 29, at the end, we have je dois and je ne plus je le vois. Ça, sans aucune hésitation. Exactly, uh, without any hesitation. <laughs> And then, but then in page 30, the third line, we have C-R-O-I-R-O-I-T, which nowadays, this is, and actually, I should have said this first. Usually this we is used in an imperfect ending of a verb. Exactement. So, in croire, we have an imperfect verb, and today, nowadays, that would be croire. Aujourd'hui, on dit croirait, oui. Because it would have an A-I-T at the end of it. But we have the choice here because we can either say croirait with, with voilà. both W-S after them or croirait where there's no W but just two S in a row or we could just put the W after the first syllable. So croirait. Voilà. Okay. Ça, c'est possible aussi. Plus on fait de W, hein, plus c'est solennel plus c'est euh, impressionnant, théâtral. Hein? Plus c'est proche du théâtre, et plus on fait « est », plus c'est proche de la conversation du, du français quotidien. Yeah, so the, the choice with the W's is more theatrical, and the choice without any of the W's is much more conversational. Voilà. There's one word that I never came across ever in French, which is « aïs ». We have an « i » with the little dots over it. Je le haïsse, c'est le verbe haïr, hein? détester. To hate, je l'hâte, voilà, voilà, exactement, c'est to, to hate. Yeah, and we have, when we have this I with the, the umlauts on it, basically, the I with the two dots on it, it, it basically functions as its own sound then, right? Alors, c'est un, ça s'appelle un tréma, hein, en français, et ça signifie une, euh, un hiatus, hein, un, un de le prononcer en deux syllabes. Hein, c'est le, ça montre que le « i » ne fait pas partie de la même syllabe mm-hmm. que le « a yeah, ». Ce n'est pas « s », ce n'est pas « heis », mais c'est « a »« i »« s 
Yeah, so that I, the two dots over the I basically signify that the, the I belongs to a separate syllable from the, from the letter A. So if we have A, I together, generally we would have E, but in this case they're, they'd function differently, so it's I, E. And the H's back then were still not pronounced? Alors, le H est théoriquement aspiré. Hein? On okay. appelle ça un H aspiré. Mm -hmm. Mais 7, 8, 10 fois moins qu'en allemand ou qu'en qu anglais. Donc, il y a une... Le, le H empêche une élision. Il empêche l'élision du E. On ne dit pas que je l'aïsse, mais que je le haïsse. Yeah. Mais on ne doit pas entendre le H aussi fort qu'en allemand ou qu'en anglais. Yeah. Basically, what we know of as an aspirate H, which means it doesn't have a, a strong puff of air like they do in English or in German, like Hauch or house. But again, just like in modern French, this H aspiré won't connect to the word that came before it. We, we have that here with the je l'aïsse, and we also have it before in at the second line on this page with the word héros. Voilà, alors pour le héros, ce jeune héros, ça on, on sait très bien, euh, puisqu'on a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, ah, ce jeune héros, c'est un hémistiche, hein, c'est six syllabes, donc on sait très bien que le H est aussi aspiré. Il n'aurait pas été aspiré au XVIe siècle. Hein. Au XVIe oh. siècle, on disait l'héros. Ah, in the century before this, this H would have not been aspirated, this would have been connected. La règle général, c'est que les H qui proviennent du germanique sont aspirés et les H qui proviennent du latin ou du grec ne sont pas aspirés. Ok, so what he's saying is that the, generally an H that comes orthographically from German, they would have an H aspiré, the aspirate voilà. H. To hate. Hein? Exactly, hate, tassen in German. Voilà. And, but the words that come from Latin or Greek would not have aspirate H's. Voilà. What Olivier meant when he said à ce jeune héros, so specifically, was that the verse of the recitative needed to have six syllables because it was the first half of an alexandrine, a verse with 12 syllables, usually divided between the sixth and seventh syllables. If you look through the text, you'll see that most of the verses follow exactly this pattern. Su fatal ce superbe vainqueur. And sometimes we need to make an elision to make this pattern work. Est-ce ainsi que je dois, est-ce ainsi que je dois, me venger aujourd'hui? In English drama, alexandrines were used before Shakespeare's time when it was supplanted by iambic pentameter. We talked a little about the I with the umlaut over it, and Olivier called it a tréma. A trema is the diacritical mark consisting of two dots over a vowel, no matter how it functions. I keep calling any vowel with two dots over it an umlaut, but technically I'm wrong. I do it for expediency because most of us know what an umlaut looks like. But technically, an umlaut is a trema where the vowel sound changes. That doesn't happen here. What we have in this case when the I has two dots over it is actually called a diuresis, which means a separation. So the I in aïs is a separate syllable from the A that's right next to it. You can find this diuresis in Italian too. And I, in fact, I just saw it on my French subtitles on the third season of Supernatural today. So it does pop up. I'll probably continue to call this an umlaut, but I wanted to make sure that we all knew the real name of it. 
One thing I said quite badly in the interview, I want to correct here. I said that the S at the end of sortie looked like an F, and that the S at the end of sortie looked like an S. <laughs> the orthography is actually that the S at the beginning or the middle of a word would look like the F with no crossbar. But a capital S at the beginning of a verse or a final S will look like an S. Now, I used the word sortie as an example, and that one does start with the F-looking one and end with the S-looking one. But in general, hopefully you can see how similar the French of the 17th century is to modern French. We have the modern use of the aspirate H, some specific words like ennemi and esclavage, which are pronounced the same today. And if you look at the text, we get some accent markings finally, although not all of them that we have nowadays. And the pronunciation of S matches up with modern French usage. The differences that we talked about are the fifth nasal, that closed A, the lowercase e nasal, that he used as the first syllable of the word invincible. I'm not even going to try it. Again, the vowel combination of O-I is still pronounced phonetically as we, W-E, as opposed to wa, like moi. But now we have some options with the imperfect tense of the verb. At the time, these endings were spelled with an O-I. Now we spell them with an A-I. As we saw here in crue C-R-O-I-R-O-I-T, we have the choice of saying crue with W open E in both syllables, crere with no W, just the open E, or crere, which we would phonetically spell as K-R-W-Epsilon-R-Epsilon, only using the W in the first syllable. It's not surprising, hearing this change in the pronunciation, how the spelling changed to A-I, and why we keep hearing on all our French Diction episodes that the imperfect tense of a verb requires an open E, while some other tenses use a close E sound. You can find many of these texts with modern spellings. In fact, I found a whole lot of different spellings for the Mignon text that we used in the last episode. But just like I say we should read the Cyrillic for Russian, I think it's better to see these texts in their original forms, too. It automatically puts us into a different mindset. It forces us to look at the past from a new perspective to see the world as it was then. Or maybe that's just me. But it puts me in mind of Game of Thrones, of medieval courts and usurpers and knights. It might seem easier to learn with modern transcriptions, but I generally find that the more work I put into something, the better I learn it in the end. Hopefully, the rules we've given you over the last two episodes will help you work things out on your own. Now, I'm sure there are other differences that we didn't talk about, but you can find a plethora of information at Olivier's website, Chantez-vous Français, at virga, V-I-R-G-A, dot org. And I'll post a link to that at the blog. I hope this has whet your appetite for medieval and Baroque French diction. I leave tomorrow for the U.S. to attend my 25th class reunion and to give some master classes, but I'll be back next Sunday, and there'll be an episode shortly after that specifically for young coaches. So keep your eyes and your iTunes peeled for the next episode, and in the meantime, look for information about Olivier Betin and his website Chantez-vous Français, or find out how to contact me with comments, questions, or suggestions at the blog at www.thedictionpolice.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, 
please go to iTunes and give it a high rating and post and tweet about it on Twitter and Facebook so that others can find it and benefit from it. Thanks for listening. See you next time.